Hi, I'm Ann Faison, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. Welcome to the first episode of the first season. This is going to be an expanded version of the trailer I made, where I talk a bit about myself and why I'm doing this. I also want to get the story of my own grief out of the way, so I don't feel compelled to share it when I'm interviewing other people. Because the whole point of this podcast is for me to learn more about adolescent grief by talking to the people who've lived it. And my first guests are my siblings, because even though we lived through the same loss, we all experienced it differently. And believe it or not, we haven't talked about it that much. One of the big problems with adolescent grief is we're really bad at talking about it. We tend to shy away from it because we think it makes people uncomfortable. But I think those early grief experiences are some of the most fascinating because they're really complex and layered and they take a long time to understand and make peace with. And I think there's a kind of myth out there that even if you lost someone really important like a parent or a sibling when you were just a kid, that at some point you should be over it. And in my experience, that's just not the case. As soon as I stopped trying to put the loss of my mother in the past, the better I felt. I decided to be friends with my grief instead of trying to do battle with it or heal it like some wound. Grief, to me, is nothing like a wound. It's not something we need to heal. It's really just a powerful response to loss that you have to go through and which then becomes part of you. But that attitude goes against much of the advice and assumptions of the people that were around me as I was growing up, including but not limited to my therapists. And I've benefited a lot from therapy over the years. But the therapist who helped me the most, specifically with my grief, was one who had lost her mom at a young age too. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions about adolescent grief, which is quite different than the grief that adults experience. On a trip to my local bookstore today, they had a whole section of books on grief, over a hundred books on it and not one was specific to teens. So this is a way for me to do some of my own informal research on a subject that, even though I've been living with it all my life, I still find fascinating. Another sort of myth about adolescent grief, in my view, is that it's always seen as a tragic story, as if that's all it is. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for all the other aspects of grief, especially for a kid who's still growing up. And I think that's another reason we don't see it being talked about very openly or portrayed realistically in the media. When I read news items or fictional stories about someone who lost a parent as a teen, I often find myself shaking my head at the screen or book because it rarely matches my experience. It was so different than the grief I've had as an adult. Teenagers are able to suppress their feelings in ways that adults can't. And my theory is that's one reason it takes so long to go through it. And for me, there really is no end point or goal. It just keeps changing and it gets more interesting with time. Another thing people writing about grief often miss is the fact that there are a lot of benefits to an early loss. It's not all bad. And that's primarily what I want to explore in this show. So more background on myself. I call myself a grief specialist, which really just means I'm a lifelong student of the grieving process. I've studied grief and done trainings, but I'm also a visual artist and a writer who's explored my own grief creatively throughout my life. Sometimes I support people who are in grief by meeting with them privately. When I support people, 
I see my job as primarily listening with an open mind and giving them permission to make space for their grief and trying to befriend it in some way, whatever that means to them. And I like talking about grief, so those conversations are actually really fun for me. I don't have much baggage or resistance or shame around it. I'm sure that's because I've really explored my own grief in many different ways, including through my work as an artist. And over the years, that's been everything from photography, drawing, to songwriting, and improv, and writing books. In all of my work, I'm really just trying to shine a little more light on grief. We live in a society that is averse to talking about death and grief, especially with young people, and I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake the adults made around me when I was growing up, and I think that as a society, we can do better with kids today. So even though I'm focused on adolescent grief, this podcast isn't just for teens and their families. I think understanding adolescent grief is actually key to understanding how grief works for all of us. Because even if you didn't lose a close family member when you were young, we all endure losses through those years, and those losses make their mark on us. So the point of this podcast is for me and anyone listening to better understand grief by finding out what happens when it hits us young and how that affects who we become. In addition to interviewing people who lost someone when they were teenagers, I'm also going to interview parents whose partners have died to find out how kids who are grieving today are faring. Eventually, I'm hoping to have some experts in the field of grief on the show, and I'm also planning to interview some teenagers about what they understand about grief from the media and other sources. In order to tell the story of how my grief has evolved, I'll begin with my first major loss and how it helped me get through another big loss much later in life. Losing my mom to breast cancer when I was 14 has always been a central part of my identity. It wasn't until much later that I saw that really as two losses, because I was only 10 when she was diagnosed, and that was also traumatic. She went from just being my mom, a healthy woman in her early 40s who was working and busy, to being a cancer patient. When they discovered it, the cancer had already spread through her lymph nodes, so she knew her chances of survival were not good. She'd had a radical mastectomy, which was major surgery back then, and she had a large wound to contend with. She lost mobility in her shoulder and arm, and she had four kids to take care of, and she was worried about losing her job. So she had a lot going on at a time when we all really needed her. As the youngest, I didn't really understand what was happening. Even though my parents were pretty good about telling us the facts and being open and honest with us, I still had a lot of worries. I was confused and sad and missing my mom, none of which was being addressed. I was often told not to bother her, so the message I got was, you're fine, she's the one who needs support now, which on a physical level was of course true, but it didn't make much sense to a 10-year-old. When I think back on that period of her illness, I remember the feelings I was having much more vividly than I remember anything else. At one point in my adulthood, I came across pictures of her a few months before she died and was shocked by how she looked. Her face was swollen from steroids, and her bald head was creeping out from under a ski cap. I don't think I'd ever seen the pictures before, and it was like looking at a stranger. Clearly, I'd replaced my most recent memories of her with older ones from before she was diagnosed. Years later, I tried writing about that period of her illness, and I found I didn't remember very much at all. I had to piece together the interactions I'd had with her based on her own journal, and a few vague memories I had that were laden with emotion. 
So that reinforces the idea for me that those four years of her illness were a traumatic period, much of which I blocked out. So despite her long illness, when she died, I really didn't see it coming. I don't remember ever talking with her about what was happening. And if anyone else tried to tell me, I don't think I would have been able to hear it because I had this fantasy that she would eventually get better. I had just always assumed that. I don't think I was really equipped to understand death before it happened. And so when she died, it was like, boom, this hammer coming down. It was a total shock. I didn't cry at first, and I remember feeling numb for a long time. I also remember feeling that because I had a very loving family around me, that I would be okay. I felt secure in that sense, especially at first. I also remember how easy it was to forget she was gone. That's the interesting thing about grief in kids, is that it actually disappears sometimes. I was able to laugh and hang out with my friends or be at school and not think about her for hours. And I avoided being home because it was always the same hard truth when I returned to our apartment and she wasn't there. I'm sure that ability to suppress my feelings probably made my dad think I was doing a lot better than I was. I remember crying a lot, which I mostly did alone, and sometimes with an older sibling. But for the most part, I tried to distract myself. Increasingly, though, I struggled with sadness, guilt, anger, things that didn't seem to get any easier with time. But I did start to feel I had a handle on my feelings, and I could choose when I would allow myself to feel sad, and when I wouldn't. But I had no instruction manual, and no one was offering me advice, so I just did what came naturally. And now that I know a lot more about grief, I think I did a fine job of supporting myself in those early years. At the same time, I'm sure it would have been tremendously helpful if my family had talked about it more. It would have helped if our relatives and the community around us had acknowledged what my family was going through. This happened at first, of course, but after about a year, maybe a year and a half, no one talked about it anymore. And I think that's when I probably started to worry that there was something wrong with me. Now I know that the first year is really just the tip of the iceberg for adolescent grief and even for adults who've lost a partner. It's still just the beginning in many ways. Sometimes a teacher or one of my friend's moms would try to say something to me, but it was usually awkward and tentative and just made me uncomfortable because I had no idea how to talk about it. And so I'm not saying people didn't try. I'm just saying I wasn't the only one who had no idea what to do. No one knew how to talk to me about it, even my own family. But it would have been great to understand that my feelings were normal and that they were going to stick around for a long time. I spent much of my teenage and young adult years feeling like there was something wrong because I was depressed, I had anxiety, and I didn't know that those were quite common among kids who lose a parent. So as I made my way through high school, I depended a lot on my friends for support. I did what teenagers do. I was rebellious, I did a lot of drugs, I took a lot of risks, and became anorexic. And not all of that was bad. The so-called risky behavior was a lot of fun and actually empowering in many ways. But at the root of it all was a desire to be seen. I remember feeling so invisible at home that dressing up and going out to clubs was a way to feel like I existed. I remember music became like my religion. But I was also very vulnerable, and that made me susceptible to predatory men and other unhealthy relationships. For example, in college, I was pursued by my mentor, a professor who was married, and that really undermined my confidence and success as a student which was another kind of loss. 
At the same time, I was beginning to explore and examine my grief through my work. In high school, I did a lot of drawings, and in college, I studied photography, and all of that was tremendously helpful. Being an artist and being able to use my feelings to make things was so good for me. And I produced some strong work, which gave me confidence. I saw a therapist in college, and I had a very loving and supportive family back home, but the grief was still not being talked about or really acknowledged. Throughout my 20s, older people around me, family, friends, teachers, mentors, even my dad acted as though I should be past it by then. But in my view, I was just beginning to learn how to process it. Now, I don't know, but I don't think it would have even been possible to process all my grief in just a few years, no matter what I did. My grief seemed to always be waiting for me as I grew and matured, as if it was like, hi again, now that you're 25, we're going to give you another heavy layer to dig through. Even though I had no concept how many years my grief would be with me, I was beginning to appreciate it as an asset. It still felt like a heavy weight that I was constantly trying to get out from under, but I did start to see the benefits of it. There were many things I felt my grief had given me, like an appreciation of how precious life is, and compassion that made me a good listener when a friend was having a hard time. Knowing that someone I love could die anytime, that I could die anytime, was humbling. And it made me want to get the most out of life by doing exactly what I wanted, which was to be an artist. But there was another benefit to all my grieving that I didn't discover until I was about 41 years old. I was six months pregnant with my second child, so almost into my third trimester, when our baby died in utero. At a routine checkup, they discovered there was no heartbeat and said I would have to give birth that day. That was a scary moment. But in that moment... I felt my confidence kick in. I immediately recognized that strength as coming from my young adult self who'd been through a lot and had taken care of herself emotionally for a long time. I just felt equipped to handle that birth and also the ensuing grief. And that was a rough grieving process. Grieving our child was totally different than grieving my mother, and yet it required a lot of the same muscles, which were pretty well developed by then. Also, my life was entirely different. I had a partner who was also grieving. And we had a toddler who was confused and upset. I never questioned how to be around her in those early days of my grieving. I just did what made sense to me, which was letting her see me cry and be sad so that she would know it was okay to cry and be sad too. But there was also a lot of joy. Loving a baby that's gone is a really strange and almost surreal experience that I can't try to describe in a sentence, but there was a lot of joy along with all the sadness flowing through our house. There was just such a feeling of love, and we danced in our pajamas a lot, and we sang, and we cried, and we had lots of little rituals and ceremonies, and we talked about it. I answered all my daughter's questions as best I could, and when she asked, as she often did, what happens when people die, where do they go, I would be honest and say, I don't know. A two-and-a-half-year-olds expect you to know everything, so those conversations went around and around, but they were always fun and interesting, and they made her quite comfortable around the subject of death. It wasn't easy attending to her and to our grief, but luckily we had a lot of support. I was able to use my work, specifically writing and drawing, to explore my grief in a productive way, which resulted in a memoir called Dancing with the Midwives. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Just as my grief took time to work through, the book took many years to complete. 
once it was published, I was doing readings at bookstores, and my daughter's second grade teacher invited me to her classroom to share it. So we all sat in a circle on the floor, and I read some passages and looked up to see 30 sets of eyes just riveted by this story about a baby who had died. They had so many questions, and I was happy to answer as many as I could. It was quite clear that they hadn't had many conversations about death before, but I don't think anyone was scared or uncomfortable because I was really happy to talk about it and happy to ask them what they thought. And the difference between my daughter and her classmates was quite striking because she wasn't that curious. We'd already had so many conversations about it that she was happy to just sit back and listen. Maybe because we talked a lot about death, she would sometimes ask what would happen if I died. I was always careful not to brush off that question or promise her that I wouldn't die. And I often reassure both my kids that I'll always be with them in their hearts if anything happens to me. I find that comforting as a mom to know that we're always connected through our love, no matter what. And that's something I had to teach myself. Growing up without my mom, I had to discover how much of her lives on in me. It took me a while to develop that relationship, but I actually feel her as alive and well in my heart because of all those years of my early childhood that we did have together. One of the great outcomes of writing Dancing with the Midwives was that it showed me that I knew how to write a book, and soon I started to write another one, this time about losing my mom. It felt really important because that loss was such a big part of me, and by then I realized how rare it was to see young grief portrayed realistically or in a positive way that wasn't superficial or making it something that was over in a week or a few months. There are so few books that actually show a long-term grieving process that made me appreciate the character of Theo Decker in Donna Tartt's novel, The Goldfinch. That was really the first time I saw grief portrayed well in a contemporary story, and it was so powerful for me to feel finally seen in that way. She did it by showing the low self-esteem, rebellion, and escapism typical of a young grief experience. So I was inspired to tell my story through a character in a novel and try to be as honest as possible, but also make the story about empowerment and creative escapism, as well as the fortitude that comes from having to grow up fast. But beyond portraying grief in books, it's also important to talk about it in real life. As the mother of two teenagers now, living through the 2020 lockdown and all the associated losses of the pandemic, I found it really important to the mental health of my whole family to continually acknowledge what a hard period this has been for all of us. Because we're older and we've already gone through a lot, my partner and I have a perspective on the pandemic that our kids don't. For them, these losses are foundational, and I believe they're going to have a profound effect on their perspectives and outlook on life for years to come. Obviously, my early experience with it has influenced me as a parent, and my instincts have always been to be as honest and open with my kids as I can be. I wouldn't know how to do it any other way. I know I can't protect my kids from pain, so I don't try. And when I was young, I'm sure the adults around me were trying to protect us by not talking about the grief. But I promise you, it did not help. So I think talking about feelings and just saying, yes, this is painful, and yes, you will get through it, is invaluable. And kids don't always like it. They might walk away from those conversations, but it's still important to do, and to do it more than once. I think it really helps them feel like they're okay and their pain is just part of them. 
And even though those conversations have been awkward and difficult at times, they've also been such a gift. It means that when my kids have painful experiences, they're often open with me about them, and that's so rewarding. It's something I didn't have with my mom, and I'm so grateful to have it now. So that's my story. I hope you'll join me for more episodes as I talk to other adults who lost somebody young about what it was like for them and what they learned from it. So if you liked this episode or got something out of it, please share it or like it or write a comment. And lastly, I want to thank Josephine Wakes for the music. It's from her album, 